I've been looking forward to this whole conference, but I've been looking forward to this session especially. Um, I am going to be the interviewer, and I'm going to interview some wonderful people. We, uh, last night and throughout this conference, we've just been really careful to say that this is not a nostalgia tour. You know, 25 years, great, and let's coast, you know, and we live off the past. We're reaching and dreaming for the future, but we also are really clear that to go into the future well, we need to understand where we came from and who we are and what God's done with us and how this whole thing started. Some of you uh, um, have been around longer than I have. Uh, others of you, you've just kind of walked into this thing called the vineyard and you kind of think like, it all, we always had all these people and all these churches and why wouldn't it have not worked? You know, all that stuff. And, and uh, but, so we thought we would interview these guys and just talk about the story and about our story. And it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to start. Father, would you just quiet our hearts, prepare us to again receive. And I pray that you would just cause some things that are already in our story to resonate for our future story. Just pray that what you want from this time will come out. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to do some introductions. To my immediate left are Steve and Cindy Nicholson. Steve and Cindy uh, lead the Evanston Vineyard. How long has the Evanston Vineyard been going? 42 plus years. That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> and... Um, they have been incredible servants. They have not only grown an amazing church just north of Chicago, but they have invested their lives around the world and not just in the vineyard movement and other streams and other tribes. And um, as you're going to hear, that God has used them uh, to bless our movement here in Ireland. And uh, so we just really honor you and bless you. And I just feel like in just so many huge ways, none of us would be here without what God did through the two of you. And then to their left, we have Sean and Debbie Byrne, who planted the first vineyard on this island, the Dublin Vineyard, which is alive and well and thriving. And um, they are a huge part of this story as well, and they're also dear friends of Steve and Cindy, and so we're going to have them as part of it, and you are going to be blessed. So, all right, should we get to it? I think I would like to start with this question. Sean, uh, would you tell us how you came to faith, mm -hmm. and just the early part of your journey as a follower of Jesus? before you ever even heard the name Vineyard. Okay. Um, if I go long, cut me off. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I grew up in Dublin, a Catholic family, like just about everyone else. Um, in the 70s, my mother started going to the Charismatic Renewal. It was a huge move of God in the Catholic Church. Just huge. There was, We'd have 15 nuns sleeping on our garage floor <laughs> up for conferences. And, but I'd go to these meetings, and the meetings would be like middle-aged women and me. I was a teenager. And, uh, but when I'd go there, I felt like God was there. I know it sounds weird. I just kind of felt like God was there. Um, and there was nothing sophisticated about it. Our songs always were, this is the day, this is, the, you know. Um, and it just was powerful. I, I suppose I just began to experience God's love for me. I'd never have talked about getting saved or anything like that. I just started to experience his love for me. But it was really gradual, really, really slow. Um, so that, that was it. I don't know why I have a day when I gave my life to Jesus. You know? I know, I know. <laughs> I've always been weak on the theological end of things. 
And will I continue? Yes, please do. Um, then one day I was cycling home from, I don't know, wherever it was, and I see across the green, uh, actually a friend of my brother, someone I knew, and I just, I'm cycling, and I felt like God saying, Sean, what about your friends? And that was it. It was just, Sean, what about your friends? So I, the only thing I knew to do was to start a prayer meeting for uh, young people. And uh, all the mothers in the prayer meeting got their teenage children to attend. And Anne-Marie and Seamus and Anne-Marie's family and Kathy and Eamon and all, they all started coming. And it was the weirdest thing. God started to show up. They started to fall down in worship and they'd wake in the middle of the night praying in tongues and I wasn't praying in tongues and all these things were happening. And I remember one day parents came to check us out and I told someone, I said, whatever you do, she was a new girl in the group. And I said, don't let her fall down. Just hold her up. It doesn't matter. Just hold her up. And I turned around and I knew then she was in, you know, she'd be looked after. And I turned, I turned around and turned back and she's on the ground. And our, our mother's looking at her, you know. But we didn't know. We didn't know anything that was happening. We didn't understand any of it. We just began to fall in love with Jesus. And then figured this is a little bit what the church is like. Stephen, Cindy, can you tell us a bit about how the vineyard, how did the vineyard start coming and visiting Ireland? How did you get roped into that? And then when did you meet Sean? So uh, Sean Wimberwood used to come over here and uh, he started in England, of course, but then started, you know, looking at other places as well. And he would... Uh, he had a strategy where he would come in the middle of the week and he'd do a really massive conference, usually several thousand people. And uh, he would bring like two to 400 Americans that would be made up of teams from a bunch of smaller teams from a bunch of different churches. So you'd have you know, 20 from this church and 20 from that, and they would add up to two or 300. And so then the big conference, we would be the prayer team for the big conference. And then on the weekends, we would split up in different directions and go do uh, local weekend conferences at all kinds of different churches as you know, all these small teams. So we would get all the leaders in the middle of the week and then We'd, we'd get like 20 to 40 different churches on a weekend. And uh, so in that way, you could uh, penetrate a big chunk of a country really, really fast. So in 1987, he decided to come to Ireland. I think, you know, I think he'd gotten an invitation from some people because they'd heard about what was happening in England. And so we came with him, and the way he did it was he did a big conference in um, Belfast, and then we split up in a bunch of different places over the weekend, and then a big conference in Dublin the second week. And uh, I don't really remember this really clear, but Sean reminded me that we actually met in Belfast. Yeah, we did. We met in Belfast. Um, at the big, at the first big conference, yeah. he was up there. You want to tell yeah. that part? Sure, sure. Um, we, I was very protective of my young people, and and I wasn't too sure about what vineyard were going to be like and everything. So I thought I'd, I'd go to the conference in Belfast and go to Steve's session to check Steve out. Um, <laughs> and so Steve did the talk and. Like I said, we were doing, you know, different songs, but they had this thing, ministry time at the end. And you know the way sometimes you don't want to go forward for ministry? You're just there in God's presence, and it's just lovely. You know, it's that, that kind of way. So that's what was happening. I was just sitting there in God's presence. There was some big church in, in Belfast, and uh, I'm just sitting there, and maybe where Paul is sitting, uh, like I'm sitting with my eyes closed, and and for some reason, I opened my eyes, and where Paul is sitting, Steve was, and he was staring at me. So I, 
I closed my eyes again really quickly, you know. <laughs> but, but it ruined the whole me and God thing. You know, that, that, that just ruined it. So, and I'd peek every now and again, and he kept staring at me. And I thought, he is weird. This, this is weird, and he's going to be talking to my young people. And, and then, after 10 minutes, he went off. He didn't say anything. I'm thinking, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> so so that, was, that was my first meeting with Steve. So I think the back story is, is that I'd gotten a word. God had said something that something's going to happen with this guy. Yeah. And I was looking to see if it was going to happen then. Yeah. I was just like trying to watch, like I was teaching, you know, like I want to watch because if something is going to happen, I want to be there when yeah. it happens. Yeah. So I had never, we hadn't really properly met. No, it got better after that. <laughs> so, so what happened next? Well, the interesting thing is my team got assigned to this little Catholic youth group on the weekend. And so we went down there with them yeah. and... It was a great time. Yeah, yeah, we really did. I, I was more relaxed because Steve spoke and saying, okay, this all seems good and everything is fine. And then we had the big conference. And then what happened at the big conference was in UCD Sports Hall. And no matter where I sat, Steve was like three seats away. <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing. It was like he was kind of stalking me, you know? And, uh, but there... That was it. I was still waiting. It was sort yeah. of like, <laughs> yeah. something's going to happen, and I yeah. want to make sure I'm there yeah. when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then something happened. Yeah. Then some, so we, in worship, like, we had ne never heard these songs before. It's like, you know, the one, I shall prepare him my heart, and uh, Jesus, 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 your name is like honey on my lips. Never heard songs like this. So I stood up and we were, I don't know which day it was, just worshiping. And, and I just this thought came to me. I thought, Sean, yeah, so what was the line of the song was, Jesus, I love you more than life itself. And this thought occurred to me, Sean, no, you don't. You don't love Jesus more than life itself. And I thought, it's true, I don't. And I, I remember having this conversation. I sat back down and, and I thought, well, Jesus, I, started, I just started talking to Jesus in my head. Everyone's walking. I just felt like I was a hypocrite. I couldn't sing. I just sat down and I said, I just said in my mind, I said, Jesus, you've always known I've been a hypocrite. It's, all, it's news to me. <laughs> but could I sing anyway? <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like Jesus saying yes. So I stood up, I stood up, and I went to sing, and God's power just came. I fell back in the chair. I couldn't, I don't know if you remember, Steve, I couldn't put my feet down. And I was going, <gasps> like really loud, like loud, loud. <laughs> and then, um, someone came forward because they obviously knew it was a demon. They came forward to cast a demon out of me from one side. And from another side, a doctor came forward because he thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> and then Steve stepped in. So basically, I'd been waiting for, at that point, over a week. So I was not about to let anybody mess this up. I felt like, <laughs> this is like, I don't know how to describe it, but there are certain moments when there's a sovereign thing of God calling someone that in, should be untouched by people. So, like, I didn't even, like, I wasn't even really praying for him, particularly. It was, it had its own momentum. It was going. 
my, my entire role was to chase off everybody else who was, going, who was trying to kind of steer it or make it something, cast out the demon or whatever it was. It was like, no, this is, that's not what's happening. Don't touch this one. This one must be untouched. I, I just had this sense that he has to come out on the other side of this knowing that he knows that he knows that this was all God and not anybody else. And I was pretty ferocious to protect the possibility of that happening. So kept everybody at bay. They they were quite confused, actually, like why I was not letting anybody touch him. But um, they did, nobody had the nerve to <laughs> try to contradict me. So, yeah. yeah. So, so then. So, so what happened, Sean? So what happened then? So I'm contorting in all sorts of ways, and I, I felt God speak, and He said, He just asked me a question, and He said, Sean, what about my family? And I knew instantly what that meant. I knew he was calling me to see the people on this island come to know Jesus. I knew it. Didn't need to explain anything else. And I was a Catholic, and uh, I had, in my mind, there was only one avenue, and that was to be a priest to do that. That's the only way you could do it. But I, I... was I wasn't ambitious in any material way, but I really wanted to have a wife and kids. So I said back, I came back with another question. I said, well, what about my family? And he just said, Sean, what about my family? And so we went back and forth for about two hours. (laughs) About two hours. Quite loudly. (laughs) (laughs) And at the end, I just said, Jesus, I'll do this on one condition. And the condition is that you'll be with me every single day. And it's kind of like, my name is Emmanuel, you know. But, uh, and that was it. That, That was, that was it. That was where this all started. That was it. And just to point out, uh, I was called at the point of my disqualification, at the point of seeing my hypocrisy, not my ability, my hypocrisy. So before we jump into um, how the two of you met and ended up in America for a while, Stephen, Cindy, can you tell us how uh, John Wimber, the great John Wimber, felt about how his investment in Ireland went? I uh, talked to him shortly after or right at the end of it. And it was the only time he ever felt that our efforts had utterly failed. He, he felt that, uh, I mean, the, me- the meetings were big and all kinds of powerful things happened, but that was never what, that was never his standard of success. Was, you know, you know, to see some amazing healings or lots of people wasn't his standard of success. Because he knew, like, when we leave, it all goes away. So success is when you leave something that continues. And he felt that we didn't get any leaders, basically, that would carry it on here. And so he felt that he had failed because we didn't get any leaders. It it just turned out that we did get leaders, but they weren't leaders yet. They were all young. They were all these young people, basically. And he couldn't see it. So we thought that we'd failed. So he got it wrong. Yeah. 
Good to know. Okay. <laughs> Debbie, you were growing up in America at this time. So you weren't around for this part of the story. So tell us a bit of your story. Tell us how you guys met and then how you landed with these guys in Evanston. Well, for me, I was uh, I'm from Washington State. Sorry, my ears are blocked, so I'm having a little bit of problem uh, hearing and speaking. But anyway, if you can put up with me a little bit. But I was from Washington State, and I went to a university that had an amazing missions program and campus ministry. And there was an older couple who had been missionaries in China, and they just came to our college group and just hung around and had people over for a real simple breakfast, and that really impacted me, and I just felt God was calling me into missions. And uh, I just, I, I didn't know what to, where to go or what to, how to get further training, but uh, an intern in the campus ministry that I had been in, he went down to Fuller Seminary to the School of, it was at the time, I think it's called something different now, but it was called the School, School of World Missions. So that was just my journey was, which was interesting. I told Cindy, uh, that was in 1987. That was the same year that John and Debbie went to Anaheim in Southern California. We were all in Southern California. And then a year later, Sean joined there. So we met at Fuller. Um, Love at first sight, or did it take a while? <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie was my boss. I asked my boss out on a date. <laughs> and on our second date, I said, you need to know if this is going anywhere, you're going to end up living in Ireland. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see what happened. Yep. Right. <laughs> And so somehow, uh, well, she obviously said yes. Uh -huh. That was yeah, very good for Eventually. you. Very good for you. Um, and somehow you ended up landing in the Evanston Vineyard. How did that happen? Steve stayed in touch. Oh, yeah. Steve would ring every now and again. How are you getting on? How, and then invited us to come and do an internship there. Yeah. I, as part of my program, I had to do an internship in a church. Yeah. And uh, Steve stayed in touch and... We got married, and two weeks later, we drove across the country. Yeah. I mean, like, I knew from what, what happened to him was not normal. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like, it's like, you know, um, I just knew something is starting that will change a nation. And I'm not going to walk away from that. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to miss it. I'm just going to, so we, we stayed in touch. I think, well, it was before emails, so we were writing yeah, letters. Yeah, yeah. We were writing letters. Yeah, yeah. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Staying in touch. And so then, you know, I knew at the end of his seminary that he would have to do an internship to graduate. So I determined that we would invite them to mm -hmm. come mm -hmm. to Chicago. So could you tell us a little bit about your time in Evanston? So um, I, I, uh, we drove into, Ev into Evanston. This is how sensitive I am to the Lord. And I turned to Debbie, you're two weeks married, and I said, Debbie, we have enough friends. Let's not get to know anyone here. Let's learn a little bit and leave. <laughs> That's what I said. What I'm thinking is, who did I marry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Discernment, never a strong point on my part. Um, and then, you don't remember this, Steve, probably, but... We arrived in on like a Thursday or a Friday, and in classroom C, which was a part of the building, 
Steve was starting the very first church planters vineyard church planters training school on the Saturday morning, two days before we arrived. And I remember sitting there at the back and turned to Debbie and I said, because when Steve came, back then the vineyard was only California. And I remember you saying that on, on, on and every other vineyard that came was from California, like, you know, tanned, white teeth, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> And then we got the Chicago people, and I was so disappointed. Like, we didn't get the real vineyard people. <laughs> and, and then, but we're sitting in classroom C, the second day we arrived in Chicago, and Steve is overseeing church planting training. And I turned to Debbie and said, Debbie, I don't feel all tingly or anything, but God has ordered my steps these past five years to get me to this place. No doubt about it. Never. God... To state the obvious, I needed to meet Steve. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, our time in Evanston. Well, uh, for me, I my background was more traditional, and I I I just fell in love with the Holy Spirit and just the values of the vineyard. I just it was, I was blown away. It was just church in a whole new way, and I just I fell in love with it. It was scary at first, and then. Uh, once I realized kind of the Holy Spirit wasn't out to, con you know, point out sin and humiliate me or, or something, but it was all, he was there to love and build us up. And uh, it was just great, like seeing people, the miraculous, seeing people be healed, seeing the first time prophetic ministry. For me, that was just really amazing and and then just being invested in I'd never had that kind of the the program that we were in the church planting we were just so invested in in that time and can I just ask it's not on the sheet but okay so how old were the two of you at this point 29 I think and how old were the two of you at this point what year was that it was I think you guys are about 10 years older than us it was at A in 91. Yeah. So late 30s? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, why I'm asking that question is, yeah. Yeah. you know, we're sitting here and we're, you know, it, like that's younger than I am now. That they were investing in these guys. And like, if you're sitting here thinking you have to wait until, you know, you're, as old as these people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that was happening when, when all of them were younger than me right now. And like, what if that happened in your context? So I just wanted to point that out. Um, and something, something happened mm -hmm. in Evanston while you were there mm -hmm. that has still has, I believe, profound impact. Yeah. So you could, you, talk, could you tell us about what happened? Um, it was Memorial Day weekend, which is like a weekend in May, and we were having a barbecue, and the barbecue wasn't lighting fast enough, so I had this big drum of, for want of a better word, petrol, and like a five-gallon drum. And it was mainly empty, but, but I thought, oh, let's just pour a little bit of petrol on and get it going a bit quicker. So the flame came up the drum and exploded. And I went on fire, and the porch went on fire, and uh, it was not nice. It was not nice. I ended up uh, third degree burns on about 30% of my body. I was helicoptered from one hospital to another. I was in intensive care. Um, in hospital, the burn ward for over a month. We had no medical insurance. Um, Debbie, what did somebody said something to you? Just Eloise was the kids' pastor, and I whispered to Eloise in the emergency room because they were talking now that Sean had to be put in a helicopter because his burns were too severe for the hospital he was taken to. And so I leaned over to Eloise and I said, Eloise, we don't have any medical insurance. And she said, Honey, just sign the form. You're in over your head. 
so, so I signed the form. <laughs> so in that emergency room, like, and so the skin is just hanging down like a curtain off me. Well, can I just say something? I rang Steve immediately, like when the ambulance was arriving and I just told Steve what had happened. And the, the hospital is kind of between, we, we lived in just in, outside of Evanston and so when the, the ambulance arrived, literally, Steve was there, Bill Hanawalt, Eloise, yeah. uh, I think Sean Tianhara was there. He might have been, yeah. It, there, there was just this crowd when we, the ambulance door opened, and that was amazing. That yeah. was like, that they were there before we arrived. And even when the helicopter arrived in the other hospital, there was a gang of people there. There. Yeah, that waiting at the helipod. to the next hospital. Yeah. So that that was but amazing. We'd never, I'd never been burned before. I didn't know anyone had been burned. We just, was I going to die? It was all very dramatic. Um, but I remember being on the table in the emergency room and two things, Romans 8.28, all things work for the good of those who love the Lord and Jesus save Ireland. They were my two prayers on the emergency room in the first place. So we went, to, can I continue? So we went, uh, the treatment is dire. They basically put you on a, like, a, like it's a metal table twice a day and there's hoses and then they just take potato peelers to you and scrape you down. It wasn't nice. Um, and then, so after about a month, I get home, there's still open wounds and stuff like that. And um, I was getting ready to, to get my wounds. Debbie was looking after me, my wounds seen to. And so I have to get into the bath. So I'm like butt naked in, in the bathroom and the Holy Spirit falls on me. It's like I fall back onto the toilet. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like this again, and Debbie says, is it the Lord or is it a heart attack? I says, it's the Lord. And he just reminded me again of what he wanted to do in Ireland. He just reminded me again, it lasted about half an hour. And then right after that, this darkness came over me. Just dark, 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 because I, I really believe God is sovereign. He could have stopped that. That was really painful. And not only that, I was a chartered accountant. I qualified with KPMG. I'd given up all that. No one had ever heard of anyone going to, I didn't even tell my friends what I was doing to go to America because it was so weird. Going to a Bible college, what are you doing? Who does that? So I didn't tell, and I'd given all this up for God and he couldn't. Mind me, protect me. I felt like, you know, like if I had a little son and he said, Dad, Dad, I'm going to jump out the upstairs window to fly, I'd say, No, 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 let me show you what an egg would happen to an egg. And I felt like he let me jump out the window. And so I just said, Jesus, I love you. I can't be with you. I, you can't come into my heart again until you answer the question, Why? Why did you allow that? So I stopped going to church. Uh, Debbie was ringing all her friends, saying, pray for Sean, Steve. Steve would ring every now and again, you know, just to try and get me in. I'd meet different people, like Sean T and Harry, and they grind different people in the church that had hard things happen to them. And like, it wasn't that bad, you know, when you see what happens to other people. But for me, it was bad. Um, and I just cry whenever I mention Jesus' name. But I could not have him in my life. And then what I didn't know, it was like on the door of my heart I had these questions, but I never realized I had a back door in my heart. And he somehow came in the back door of my heart without <laughs> ever answering those questions, which was weird. But what happened in that, what he did to me and Debbie, in that process is, um, like Steve would have said, I don't know if you remember this, Steve. Steve would have said, well, let me go back. Two things happened to us. One is, as well as uh, my skin getting burnt off me, something got burned 
into us. And those two things were that we can't live without Jesus and we're for Ireland being saved. Those things got burned into us then. And Steve afterwards would have said, I don't know if you remember this, Steve, or not, that up till that point, he wasn't sure if we were going to make it. But God did something in that thing that caused us to be more solid. And now, looking back on it, I would never want to go through it again. I would not give it back. I would not give it back what Jesus did. Would not. So that was, uh, that was it. Then in 93, we came home, pregnant, into an economy where there was no jobs, all that sort of stuff. So you're, you're back in Ireland. What, what year is that? 93. 93. I think we might have a photograph. Yes. <laughs> 25 years ago this month. So the guy on the far left, you've never met before. His name's Brock. He's not here. He's a very wonderful person, but don't worry about him. Um, you might recognize the next guy over who to me looks like he's on an album cover or something like that. <laughs> and then I think, tell me what you think. Uh, Sean thinks he looks like Phil Collins. I think in that picture, he looks like a young Bono. What do you think? <laughs> That's, our son. That's a big compliment for Bono. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, there's Debbie. Yep. And which, which one of your kids is? is which? Connor, Connor, our first. That's Connor. I think he, he was five weeks old when we had the first minister trip come over, which I don't know how we did that. <laughs> we did. And then just, that's a woman called, it's Deb Gustafson, right? Yeah. That's yeah. next to Debbie there. So it's down in Glendalough. This is in Glendalough. And uh, Sean, you were saying this is 25 years ago this month. Yeah. 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 This was October 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Debbie, could you talk a bit, and, and Sean, about the early years in Dublin, church planting, and why didn't you quit? <laughs> well, for me, my background was Protestant, so coming into a country that was... 95% Catholic was quite a learning curve very quickly that things were really different than what I had known. So, uh, and cultural differences, but, um, so like Sean said, the economy was quite depressed. It was nothing like it is now. It wasn't diverse. Like I've probably felt pretty foreign there. Like, you know, there wasn't as many people from other places, because there was no job, so there wasn't a reason to really go there. Um, so I'm trying to think. The I suppose some of it was um, just the, the context was so hard. People had no frame of reference for what we were trying to do. It was people, if you tried to talk to people like oftentimes uh, they, they just didn't get it. They didn't know what to do. You have to remember too, the troubles were quite, still going quite a lot at that period. So we couldn't really, people would say, well, what are you, what religion? And we, didn't, we couldn't really say we're Protestant because it just was very, it kind of closed doors at that time down south. And then we weren't Catholic. So it was like, what were we? You know, it was like, it was so just- funny. The regular question was, well, are you a cult? You know? <laughs> All the it's time. hard to answer that question because if you say yes, that's not good. And if you say no, you're obviously lying anyway. You know? Trying to remember other things. I suppose, and the whole thing would be like, you know, like, by what authority are you doing this? Like, people, they'd ask questions. People would say, like, well, how can you do communion? Like, there's no priest. Or who does Sean Bourne think yeah, he is anyway? We got that a lot. A lot of you know, priests were, who yeah. does he think he is to start the, a church? 
And some of the guys, like, you know, as we started having children and everything, like their parents were just uh, begging them to just baptize, even do it secretly, baptize your child in the Catholic Church. Just, it was just or one one person that's in our church, he, he his parents were going to kick him out of the house for coming to church like ours. So, you know, because he was uh, influencing his younger sister. So there, it was it was hard for them. There was a real cost for people to be involved in a church like ours. I think we have a, a another slide, and it's of a prayer letter. Yeah, that's one of Sean and Debbie's prayer letters back to Evanston, or just people supporting you and praying well, for you. Just, yeah, uh, people, yeah, friends in friends Evanston and Fuller. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and my family and friends. Yeah, I I photocopied that to Andy and sent it to him. Oh, Debbie found it actually, and I thought, gosh, it was hard. It was really gosh, hard. it was hard. <laughs> yeah. And Steve and Cindy, you you kept going and you kept praying and you kept visiting. So um, could you just talk about why and what you saw and what you prayed? And like that would have been, you, you would have had a young family at that time, growing church. That would have been a big cost. Yeah. Can you just talk about like why, why you paid it? Uh, we just knew that it was God. I think, you know, it, even though it was hard and it wasn't happening very fast, it often felt like plowing rocks. Yeah. Um, we just felt like this is a sovereign thing of God. This is not our idea. This is God's idea. Yeah. This is his thing. And so we're going to do it. We're just going to keep doing it. I think there is real value in somebody who is not boots on the ground where you are, who holds that original call and that vision that God gave you, if he's sending you, in their hearts and in their memories and in because there are seasons when they have more faith for it than you do if you're the one going and they can in a sense see it more clearly um and see your future and you're tangled up in the you know, in the daily conversations and the people who reject you and the, and the, you know, just the puzzle of it and the struggle of it. And that was part of our role was just to hang on to the vision and the promise of God for these guys when it was hard. And if, you, if God's calling some of you to church planting, you need your sending church. You need to have people there who love you and love the vision and are praying for the vision and are hanging on to it for you and helping you remember, oh yeah, oh yeah, I, I'm not just a crazy person hitting my head against the wall. God called me to this and there's a promise that he will see it through. Yeah, that's really good. So Steve and Cindy came for about six years every year, every year just to hold, to hold our hand. We often were crying. Well, yeah. I was. There was one, <laughs> Steve one, would then start laughing, you yeah, know. Yeah. Cindy there, there. there was, at one stage, we were in the couch and, and we're crying and Debbie's crying and Debbie says to Steve, said, if we were a horse, you'd shoot us <laughs> in kindness. I did. I did say that. I did. That's, I, I just, I honestly felt that way. I felt at times, I, it felt such a burden. It felt hell. It was dire. Dire. And if Steve and Cindy didn't come, and if Seamus and Marie and the others weren't with us. Our team was such a big part of that, of why we're here. They believed in the vision. There was a small group, like they were on our team, and just, we just kept going. We just 
And I think the other thing was the call yeah. was so clear that for us, like I know we used to walk with the kids in the, one of them in the buggy, go for a walk, and we would just fantasize about quitting and would we move to America? We could do that on my V, you know, like I'm an American. You know, we used to just, and then we we're like, we just can't. We're going to stand before the Lord and give an account. And we just can't give up. We can't. That really was. This, this probably isn't right to say, but it actually, the call of God felt like a prison sentence at times. Yeah. It felt like, because we couldn't walk away. We couldn't walk away. And yet it was like, if you read that prayer letter, it was just failure and nothing happening and then Steve would come and we'd keep going for another little while and, <laughs> yeah. you know and it was hard and Debbie I really want you to talk about um, what we talked briefly about last yeah. night there's, there's something in your story that you know lots of things have been worth the cost you paid but, yeah. but this piece is like for you, the, the pearl Right, so talk to yeah, us about that. Just probably, I suppose, over the years of it being so hard and feeling, I think for me, like, say, going to a conference like this was really, really painful. Because for me, a lot of people would say, you know, how big is your church? You know, I just felt measured all the time. And that measurement for me was always that we were failing. So it was just so painful. Um, so uh, just over the years, I, I would just push, you know, we tr what happened is all of our stuff then was getting pushed out. So mine, my stuff was uh, striving just to feel I had acceptance. So it was, I think, Sean, we just work, put our heads down, let's work harder, you know. Um, and then just, I think I struggled so much with a deep sense of shame that, that, that I was just what has been said over this whole weekend. Like for me, I just felt I was totally a mistake. That the, this part of it was, this is Sean's call, not mine. So like, I just felt um, a mistake. And so I basically, just lots of stuff, just striving, you know, pushing harder, trying harder. And what happened is one day I just, I literally, I went to church, an event happened that pushed all that junk up again. And I just, I was so tired of trying so hard. I, I remember just constantly saying, I just want to, I want rest. I just want rest. I was just so weary. So that day I literally went home, I crawled in my bed and I told God, that's it. Sorry. Like, I, I'm not doing this anymore. And I told Sean, I'm sorry, I'm not doing this anymore. I just can't. Um, and, you know, it's kind of amazing is that I always think of Jesus and a sense of humor. I just picture him up there going, finally. <laughs> She's given up, finally, finally. So that was the best day that ever happened to me because it was the beginning of a big turning point in my life of kind of of just letting Jesus into all of my brokenness, letting him uh, renew and repair my broken heart and, and, and kind of uh, I just became aware of all my, my issues and how they were affecting my leadership and or not leading, you know, standing in or back or, or controlling. I was trying to control everything. There was just so much just messed up in there. So about uh, probably for two years, I just went on this amazing journey with Jesus. And he just, every little once in a while, he just dropped a new gem in my heart of of restoration and, and the whole thing was just this whole theme on identity. Um, he just, I think I didn't think, I knew that he liked me, but the that big- he loved you. That he, lo he loved me, but I didn't know he liked me. And he just showed me that he liked me. Because when you like someone, when you love someone, that feels obligation. But when you like people, you want to hang out with them. 
And I felt like he wanted to hang out with me. He wanted to, to be with me. And I think the other thing is what Jay was talking about this morning. Um, you just have to let Jesus into that stuff. It's, it's, I just was nodding my head from the back. That's exactly, we, it's, we all have stuff. We all have it, and we just have to let Jesus in. If we don't, um, it, you just get hijacked by the enemy who just wants to, to rob and kill and destroy everything you've been called to. So on that journey, I, I just discovered grace. I, 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 I think one of the parts that was really significant was at the NLC, John Mumford put up two circles, and this was another piece of the puzzle. And it was all about, you know, one was called the cycle of grace, and one was the cycle of striving. And uh, the cycle of striving starts by, I do so I can feel accepted and significant. And so just this striving thing, and I was like, it was like an epiphany, that's me, you know? And then he put up the cycle of grace, and grace is so different because it begins with acceptance and significance, and then you go do, because Jesus has done all that in you. So that just, that, that was a new mindset that really um, brought a lot of freedom. So it was just, I just feel so grateful that I know how dark my heart got, but He's just so full of mercy, and you know, he's just so full of mercy, Jesus. He, he wants to come into those places, and sometimes um, we don't know how. I think that was me. I just didn't know how to let him in. But just I just want to encourage you, like, just let Jesus in. It's the best thing I ever did. It transformed. You can tell yours really quick. You're... I don't know if you have time or maybe in time. So how did you feel about that when she said she quit? Um... <laughs> Well, our garden suddenly started looking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Two years, our garden looked amazing. Um, we were both in a bad place. And um, from the same, Debbie's was, if she could only, if we could get the church to work, yeah. then I'd feel accepted. Me, I already knew I was an idiot and a failure. So, but I was stuck in this thing that was exposing my failure all the time. I couldn't get out of it. And um, so it, it, it was just, it was just hard. And so a couple of phrases that we have, like we thought we were coming to do this great work for God. <laughs> Actually, he wanted to do great work in us. That was it. And, and we just began, it was just a real slow process. I just had this picture one day, and maybe some of you might identify with it, I saw this picture of a field with a load of stakes in it, like wooden stakes. And I knew instantly what the stakes were. The stakes were all my good deeds that I was doing for Jesus. Now I believed in grace. So don't, like, and I had nice times with Jesus. And I knew if there was a lot of stakes in the field, me and Jesus were good. And Jesus spoke to me and he said, Sean, there's no stakes. And I thought, like, well, I literally said this out loud. How do you mean there's no stakes? Then how am I supposed to know how I'm doing? And he said, there's no stakes. There's no stakes. And so we went on this journey of discovering the gospel. Yeah. The gospel is staggering. It's staggering. I didn't realize how staggering it is. Tim Keller says, if you think you, you get it, it's a good sign you don't. If you're not, if we say, if you don't think it's too good to be true, you still haven't gotten it. You still haven't gotten it. This thing is staggering, the news that we have. It's staggering. Like when you start looking in, in Romans, like this, so we started spending a lot of time in the Bible. Uh, and <laughs> Romans, Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We all memorize it. I realized we don't believe it. I didn't believe it. Actually, the church is full of people who feel condemned. I thought, what's that? Where's the, where, there's something wrong there. 
So then you go back to like Romans 4 about 13 and it says uh, uh, where there is there is no where there is no law there can be no transgression. So and you've died to the law and you've died to sin so there's no law so you can't break no law. And you kind of, so I never ever relate to God based on on law and how I'm doing and I know it seems really obvious to you but it was like I don't ever relate to God based on the law. That's staggering. See, I used to think there's no condemnation for those who don't sin. <laughs> you know? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Heaven has been emptied. Life is here. And then Paul goes on and... and, and he talks about being dying to sin. And then John writes 1 John 4.16. Who are we? Daniel asked that question yesterday. Who are we? You know what John answered that question? We are those who have come to know and rely on God's love for us. That's who we are. And I used, Jay even talked about it earlier. I used to get up my nose reading John's gospel. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. It just got up my nose. Who does he think he is? You know? <laughs> like, no one, he's the only one who said that about him. The other guys didn't. Luke didn't say, oh, you know. The, it really, it really annoyed me. And then, on this journey, I began to realize, John wasn't. You see, I was reading it as a comparison. John wasn't comparing it to anyone. John just was the disciple Jesus loved. That's who he knew himself to be. He was the disciple Jesus loved. And that, who do you know yourself to be? And we've been on this journey of beginning, we're not there to know, oh, Sean, you know who he is? He's the disciple Jesus loves. He's the disciple. And when you begin, all of a sudden, I just, it just felt like good news all of a sudden. Like we've got really, really, really good news. We've got good news. We're the ones Jesus loves. And we've a country that needs to hear that. And needs to know people who know it. Like one of Debbie's lines is, on before the kind of turning point, I felt bad about myself and Christianity made me feel worse. That's how I felt. Yeah. We just I wasn't measuring up. I just couldn't we do it. We never got this gospel. We never, this good news changes. Dublin Vineyard? Everything. <laughs> That's our saying. Encountering Jesus, Jesus changes, changes everything. everything. Amen. Amen. So that was, that's been our journey. This is good news. We're ready. So now We're ready. coming here is fun. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we need to come in for a landing, but I just... Um, would love it if the four of you would pray for us. Could I do one more thing? Absolutely. Okay. He's preaching. Yeah. <laughs> I, one of the things I've been doing, I've been uh, reading some biographies, particularly the guys in China, China Inland Mission guys, uh, Jonathan Goforth and so. And Hudson Taylor is one of the guys. And Hudson, if you, if you ever want to read a book that'll change your life, Hudson Taylor's uh, spiritual, spiritual secret. secret. He he suddenly got it. He got the gospel, and it changed everything for him. But um, what's my point there? <laughs> oh yeah. So one of the Guinnesses, one of the Guin there's a part of the Guinness family that's evangelical. So they invited Hudson Taylor to speak in Dublin. So this is years ago. This is years ago, obviously. <laughs> Hudson Taylor, eighteen. He must have come about eighteen fifty, eighteen sixty, something like that. And so it was in a Guinness house, so obviously it was a big room. So, but even in a big room, maybe they had 70 people. 
It's maybe 70. So Hudson Taylor spoke, and what they faced over there in, in China and at those times, just unbelievable hardship. Unbelievable hardship. And Hudson Taylor spoke, and 10 people of that 70 signed up to go to China. 10 Irish people. 10 Irish people. To give up everything, there was probably a good chance they wouldn't get married. They'd never have a house. They'd never have a pension. They weren't sure where their support was coming from. Never maybe see their families again. Never see their families again. 10 out of 70. And I just wanted to say, God still calls that way. God still calls that way. There's some of us, this, this thing is never us. It's, remember he said, what about my family? It's about his family. And he's calling some of us, this is probably politically incorrect, you know what? You might never own a house. You might never get married. You might never have a pension because you're following the call of God into some town in Ireland, some city in Ireland, and you're giving everything, everything for that, for that. 10 out of 70. 